listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. I love teaching confirmation. Since the very beginning, this has been like one of the favorite, my favorite things that I get to do as a pastor. And I'm not just saying that. You guys put up with a lot, like more dad jokes than anyone should physically ever be asked to bear. So I, 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 you have my sympathy and you have my deepest respect as well. So I appreciate it. But in all seriousness, I have learned a lot from this group of kids during our time together. And one of the things that I have learned is that Kids today have a lot of pressure on them. I realize how old I sound saying kids today. I'm okay with that. I'm starting to wrap my mind around it. Um, but you guys have a lot going on, right, between sports and school and parental expectations and church and confirmation and work. Like, there is a lot of pressure. And with all of those different pressures comes different expectations, Right? Everybody's got different expectations of you. If it's a, a sports team or you're, you're in school, your teachers do, your parents do, your pastor does. All of these expectations, your coach's expectations, and it can feel like a burden. And maybe even feel guilty when you don't meet those expectations. So today I wanted to talk about one of those pressures in particular. I want to talk about peer pressure. Now, if you think that peer pressure is just a phase you go through in high school, you're wrong. Because whether you're 2 or 92, every single one of us experiences these kinds of pressures, right? We're bombarded by a million different voices telling us a million different things, seeking to influence our hearts and minds, tugging and pulling us like this way and that we're all subject to the influence of others, most of the time, like, without even knowing it. As much as we would like to imagine we're like these free agents in life, the captains of our own ships and the masters of our own destinies, right? This sounds great. It looks good embroidered on a pillow. But the research tells us that this is actually not the case. So in a book called Brandwash, author Mark Lindstrom, he mentions this 2008 experiment that was conducted at Leeds University. And basically what they did was they got a whole bunch of people and they stuck them in a, a big hall and they told them to walk around in this hall without talking to each other. Like that was the extent of it, just wander around through this hall. But a few people they gave specific instructions to and said, okay, we want you to walk this specific pattern while you're in the hall. Just a few of them. And the results of this were basically unanimous. Whether you were a, a kid or, or older, it didn't matter. In every single case, basically everyone ended up following blindly the ones that seemed to know where they were going, the ones that had this set pattern that they were walking in. One of the researchers said this, the research suggests that humans flock like sheep and birds subconsciously following a minority of individuals, and that it takes a mere 5% of informed individuals to influence the direction of a crowd up to 200 people. 
the other 95% trail along without even being aware of it. That's peer pressure, right? That's the picture of peer pressure. Like, it happens without us really even knowing it. So I found another good example from this. This one was, was really interesting. It's from the world of the NFL, okay? So here's what happened. There was this, this guy. He was a, a statistician and a coach, Michael Lopez. He analyzed 82,000 plays and 1,400 penalty calls over a five-year period. And specifically, he looked at late hits, uh, especially the ones that occurred near the sideline, one sideline or the other, of a particular team. And do you know what he found? That the refs were far and away more likely to rule in favor of the team whose sideline they were closest to. Isn't that interesting? When you have a coach and an entire sideline's worth of NFL players yelling at you very loudly and expressing their opinions and screaming for you to make a decision in their favor, right? This is peer pressure. You're less likely to oppose them. Even NFL referees then, these people that we tend to think of as being neutral parties, are susceptible to peer pressure. Whoever's the loudest and most demanding is going to get the call. That's the power of peer pressure, isn't it? And whether we feel that pressure in person or from YouTube or TikTok or friends or teammates or the culture around us trying to influence us in a particular direction, trying to get us to conform, there are basically two ways we respond. Two ways you can respond to this kind of pressure, this peer pressure. You cave in or you be courageous. And I wonder, for all of you here today, as you reflect on experiences you've had when peer pressure has come into play, which of these best describes you? Which one are you more likely to take and why? So here at Elam, we just started this brand new sermon series called Broken Heroes, right? And what we're doing each Sunday is taking a particular character of the Bible, someone we tend to think of as being a great hero of the faith. And we're diving deep into their lives, and what we're discovering is that every single one of them is flesh and blood, that they're human like us. They struggled, they, rest, they wrestled, they were imperfect, and they didn't get things right all the time. They had no like superhuman powers that somehow enabled them to just overcome sin, sin while you know, the rest of us poor saps kind of sit here and, and struggle. That, that's not the case. They were sinners saved by grace through faith alone, just like the rest of us. So last week, we talked about Eve's unbelief. The week before that, it was Moses' anger. And today, we're going to talk about Caleb's peer pressure. If you're unfamiliar with Caleb, it's okay. He was one of the successors of Moses, along with Joshua in the Old Testament. So you remember that God led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, right, under Moses. And the Israelites, they, they wandered in the wilderness for a long time. They came to the promised land of Canaan, and they were right up to the brink of it. But before they went in to conquer it, Moses sent in these 12 spies to spy out the land. Does this sound familiar? Yeah? So Caleb was one of those spies. And, and spies went in, and they brought back their report. Here's what it says, Numbers 13, 25 through 30, if you have your Bibles. 
says, At the end of forty days they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, and the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report. Let's pause there. Caleb is experiencing tremendous peer pressure at this point, isn't he? It's basically him against all of the other spies. We can count Joshua because Joshua was on his side, but, but he's kind of remaining silent at this point. So it's him versus these ten other spies. They'd gone into the land, and there are these huge people there, and, and, and most of the spies see that, and what happens? They become fearful, don't they? And they say, well, we can't do this. We can't go in and conquer the land because these people, are there. they're stronger than us. They're, they're more numerous than us. So you got all of these, these spies, and they're, they're swaying the entire nation of Israel in their direction is what it sounds like here. And Israel was not a small nation. We're talking like over a million people. And then you've got this one dude, this one guy, two guys, doesn't really matter. Odds are still pretty million to one, a million to two. It doesn't make that much of a difference. Uh, and they're standing strong. So the people are scared. They're ready to cave into that fear. And what happens? Well, they complain to Moses and tell him, we want to go back to Egypt. They cling to their past rather than entering boldly into the future with faith. But at this point in the story, Joshua and Caleb stand up. Can you imagine this? Like, I'm standing up in front of maybe, I don't know, 150 people right now. Can you imagine standing up in front of a million people? That's what he does. And they said this. They give this speech. You thought your guys' knees were shaking this morning. Imagine this. And they tear, So Joshua and Caleb are there. They tear their clothes, which is just a sign of distress and frustration. And they address the people. They say... This is Numbers 14, 7 through 10. The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of this land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord's with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. How's that for a reaction? There's a steep cost to standing strong, isn't there? There's a high price for not giving in to peer pressure. In this case, the people threatened to literally kill Caleb... 
because he wouldn't give in to their demands. Now, ultimately, God intervened, and no one was killed. But even so, like, can you imagine the ostracism that Caleb would have faced, not just in that moment, but, like, afterwards, too? I mean, this is a communal society. These were friends and family, fellow tribesmen, people that he'd experienced some stuff with, right? Like, they'd done life together, maybe even grown up together, probably mourned and grieved together and come out the other side. And now he's going to jeopardize all of it, put everything on the line for the sake of his Lord. Caleb's response to peer pressure was not to cave in, but to be courageous. And ultimately, God blessed him for this, punishing the other Israelites for their rebellion. All of the other ten spies died by the plague, and none of the Israelites who questioned God actually got to enter into the promised land. As he makes this pronouncement, God actually holds Caleb up as this shining example of integrity. Listen to this, Numbers 14, 24. God says, My servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Caleb has a different spirit. What does this mean? What are we talking about? How is his spirit different from all of the other spies? Did he live a holier lifestyle? Did he sin less? Did he read his Bible more? Was he a more generous giver to his local church? Was he super brave? Well, no, not that the text indicates... So what then? What Caleb had that none of the other spies had was faith. Caleb had faith. He had faith in God's promises when everyone else faltered. Notice that when Caleb is encouraging the Israelites to go in and take the land. He's not coming up with some brand new, like, military strategy. Now, he's not some William Wallace figure marching in and rallying the troops and coming in with some, like, new strategy to, to overcome the Amalekites or something. What he's doing is reminding them of God's promises. In order to go forward, he's, he's pointing them backward. That's it. He's basically telling them, hey, Everybody, I know you're scared, right? I know you're scared right now. I know the odds seem stacked against us. But do you remember? Do you remember back in Leviticus 20 24 when God made this promise to us? But I have said to you, you shall inherit the land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. Do you remember that? Yeah, our God always keeps His promises. So we should trust Him. We should go in and take the land. See, Caleb simply believed the promise when nobody else did. He had faith that God would come through and that faith was a gift from God, not something he conjured up on his own. God's gift of faith is what enabled him to not cave in to peer pressure but to be courageous. And that's exactly what enables us to do the same thing. 
Here's the thing about faith. Faith has to be nurtured in order for it to grow. Right? If I was to go out and plant a garden, I put some seeds in the ground, and if I walk away from it, come back five months later, and expect uh, something beautiful to have grown, that would be just ridiculous, right? Because there's things you have to do. That would actually be a good description of the way I tend to garden. So uh, it's no surprise we don't have much uh, to see on the, the Chelhog farmstead. Um, faith has to be nurtured to grow, right? You want a plant to grow, it has to be exposed to sunlight, has to be watered. Maybe you've got to pull some weeds out of there, fertilize the soil, etc. And in the same way, guys, your faith in Jesus needs to be nurtured in order for it to survive. Jesus in the Bible is clear on this. For your faith to grow, you regularly need to hear God's word and you need to surround yourself with other believers. In other words, you need to be part of a local church and you need to receive God's grace through the sacraments because we always need to be reminded of the depths of our own sin and the even greater depths of our Savior's love. And parents, are there any parents here? If you're a parent in the house, raise your hand. This is on you. The research is clear. I, I, as your pastor, Sunday school teachers, can talk until we're blue in the face about what the Bible teaches, but unless those values are reinforced in your home, unless moms and dads foster spiritual discussions and take faith seriously, statistically speaking, that faith is not going to stick. That's the reality. That's what the research bears out. Here's one infographic I want to show you. This is by the, the Pew Research Institute. Take a look, take a look at the, the, the boxes I've circled. The results are obvious, and maybe you, you wouldn't even need this to, to know it, but it, it's asked the question, among parents who say they attend religious services, uh, go back, Stan, sorry. Uh, among parents who say they attend religious services a few times a year or less, 89% of kids will also attend religious services a few times a year or less. Among parents who say they pray seldom or never, 82% of kids, of teens, say they too will pray seldom or never. Among parents who say religion is not too important or not at all important in their lives, 80% of teens will say the same thing. And on the flip side of that, you can see, for example, say them, go back again, Stan, sorry. Uh, among parents who say they pray seldom or never, 6% of teens will say they pray daily. See how drastic these, these numbers are. The bottom line is that if your Christian faith is not a high priority for you, it's probably not going to be for your son and daughter either. So here's another infographic from Barna. You can go to the next one. There we go. Uh, this one is a little bit shocking. Between 2011 and 2019, the number of young adult church dropouts 
young adult being ages 18 to 29, increased from 59 to 64%. Let that sink in. These are the ones who grew up attending church, but have withdrawn from church involvement. Now, they haven't necessarily left the Christian faith. They have left institutional religion. And it's becoming increasingly common. So parents, let me challenge you to ask the question, how can I keep my kid from being a statistic? From being one of these? How might God be calling you to reprioritize your life, to focus on things of eternal significance? And where are you investing the majority of your time, energy, and money in the life of your child? Are you investing in things that will last or no? As Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 8, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So my encouragement to you is to steward your faith and the faith of your kids well. And you certainly don't have to do it alone. Uh, you've got a whole church full of people here who would love to walk that road with you, to be a, a sounding board and no doubt to give you all of the unsolicited advice that you can handle and then some. But friends, confirmation is not graduation. So here's how graduation works. is You take your hat, you throw it in the air, you can walk out of those doors and never come back if you don't want to. With confirmation, though, it's different. You need to return to church to thrive. It's just the beginning. Seeds have been planted, but they need to be fed and watered in order to grow. So as we wrap up, this morning, I, I want to leave you guys with this. This is especially for the confirmation students, but it's for everyone here too. And this is going to sound a little bit trite, but I think there's a lot of truth in it. The Christian faith is not ultimately about how much you know, but who you know. Christian faith is not ultimately about how much you know, but who you know. So, Kaya, if you forget at some point in your life one of the parts of that seven-part question on baptism. Megan, I don't know why I chose Megan here, but you're getting it. Uh, if you forget the order of the 66 books of the Bible and mix up Habakkuk with Zephaniah, I know that sounds crazy. I'm sure you'll never do this, right? But if that happens, and Colby, if 10 years down the road, you forget some of the words to the Lord's Prayer, just remember this one little word, Jesus. Jesus is enough to save you, and He's enough to keep you. He loves you so much that He gave up everything for you to adopt you as His beloved sons and daughters through faith. He's stronger than the biggest storm you'll ever face, more forgiving than the greatest sin you'll ever sin. See, unlike us, Jesus never once gave in to peer pressure. 
he never caved. He remained courageous and strong all the way to the cross, and he did it for you and for me. Cling to him, hold fast to him, and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he will always hold fast to you. Join us next week as we continue our Broken Heroes series by talking about Abraham's insecurity. Let's pray. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's pastorkjolhaug at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.